Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we are doing another Faith Seeking Freedom chapter, and it is my pleasure to welcome back Dick Clark, my fellow co-author and champion of individual liberty. Thanks, Dick, for coming on. Hey, good to talk to you again, Doug. Yeah, it's been like so long since we've chatted. I know, I know. That's sarcasm. We just recorded two episodes. For everybody who wants to know how this is run, we, we're doing this all in one, one night. Not all of them, but many of them. So what is this series? This series that we're doing about every third episode of our podcast has to do with the book that we've published, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And the idea of the book is a Q&A book that is about 102, I think, over 100 questions that libertarian Christians are commonly asked. And today we're going to talk about chapter 10, which is about immigration. And believe it or not, this is a topic that a lot of people ask about. <laughs> and it's also, I mean, just in the news lately is uh, Kamala Harris telling immigrants that they are not welcome. It's like, huh, interesting. That's just crazy because that's not what you'd expect from that side of the aisle, if you will. So, Dick, the world is bereft of common sense and logical thinking about the idea of immigration. So we're going to set them straight. And especially if they're Christians, we're going to set them straight because there's some biblical things to say about it as well. So I think we should just start off with what does the Bible say about immigration? Well, Doug, the fact is the Bible says quite a bit about immigration. And I think the very first thing that I put together that was ever published on the Libertarian Christian Institute website was back in 2014. And it was a list of all the verses that I could find that seemed to address this issue. And I mean, there are dozens of them. And it's just very clear that, you know, the scripture speaks with one accord on this, that you can't have different laws for strangers and for native born. That is to say, for non-natives and for natives. You have to treat them the same under the law. And this is recited again and again with a specific illustration offered, you know, where it analogizes to the Hebrews themselves being in Egypt and being oppressed by the native Egyptians as the strangers in a strange land and how you shouldn't ever want to do to others what the Egyptians did to us. So that's part of it. So not uh, only does the Bible say a lot, it says something very early on. Right. And it's repeated over and over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament. And of course, Christ himself makes reference to the stranger at your door as one of the least of these. You know, the, if you don't invite the stranger in and you don't clothe him and attend to his needs, you know, that's like not doing the same thing for Jesus. And that we are called to provide, you know, benevolent support to those folks because they have a particular need. And they're really described in the same category as, you know, widows and, and orphans and poor people generally and prisoners. And of course, you know, Christ was speaking in a time when his audience would have more 
perhaps uniformly recognized that many people in prison are unjustly imprisoned because they had an occupation regime, right, with sort of a, a local flunky government that was in with the, with the Romans. And so they certainly would have recognized that people in prison were having a bad time of it and it wasn't necessarily their own fault but not universally, right? I mean, certainly there were some people who were there because they were being punished for something they legitimately had been guilty of doing, but still were called to minister to them. But I'll tell you, Doug, even if we didn't have the specific instruction about being benevolent to immigrants, we can solve this whole problem with property rights, right? And of course, libertarians, we, we're a, a one-note band sometimes. We love to talk about property rights. <laughs> but it's because they're so useful in avoiding and resolving disputes. And libertarians love peace, and we hate violence and compulsion. And so we always want to find ways to reach peace and accord and consensus and to avoid disputes that could lead to violence, right? And so the fact is, that nobody ought to be able to use violence to tell me who I can invite over to dinner. And nobody ought to be able to use violence to tell me who I can hire as an employee. And nobody ought to be able to use violence to tell me who I can sell services to or sell goods to or all these other wonderful pro-social transactions that we have with others in in the market. And that's all we have to know. (laughs) But there's more we could talk about, of course. (laughs) Well, it sounds like what you're saying is basically if you want to welcome, and, and I don't mean to be cliche here, but if, you know, if you're living in Texas and you want to invite Pedro from across the border to come have dinner with you or to do something, some sort of work for you, I should not be allowed to say, no, 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 Dick, but we have laws here that says he can't come over. Doesn't matter how peaceful he is. Doesn't matter how productive he is. Doesn't matter what good he offers to our country. There are laws that say he can't be here. And you're basically saying, and I agree with you, of course, that that is unjust. I am because we don't have the right to exercise control over other people's stuff by force of violence, right? And that's what it comes down to. Most of this country, well, I take that back. At least in the eastern half of the United States, <laughs> most of the country is, you know, is privately owned, right? Now, as we get into the western United States, there are these vast tracts of land. And in some few states, it's actually the majority of the land within that state yeah. where the government owns the land. And it's not clear that there was ever a private owner of that land. And so I'm pretty dubious on the proposition that there's any property rights violation going on when somebody crosses that land, because I don't think government has good claim to that property to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there's anybody else that does either. And so it's just sort of wilderness. And so somebody walking through the wilderness doesn't offend anybody's rights, you know, except for maybe their their own if they made the wrong call and brought too small a canteen or something, right? I mean, it can be dangerous, but (laughs) it's not a crime against another person that violates another person's rights. Now, I absolutely believe that cutting people's fences and trespassing on private property and stealing stuff and accosting people, and and we know all those things do happen along the border sometimes and, and are often attendant to this border issue of people trying to get across when the government says they can't. Yeah. But I think the laws make those problems worse, not better, right? And, and if it weren't for yeah. the government line right there, well, why would that guy have any more incidents of crime than the guy next door to him to the north, right? Or yeah. the one next to him after that. But it's acute and local 
precisely because the government has made it so. Yeah. And so we, we can't blame that on immigration. We blame it on the way that the government handles immigration. Yeah. And, and I will tell you that a big part of it, I think, is recently people have sort of discovered, hey, maybe we don't need to have the police conduct high-speed chases for every possible violation. We'll catch the tag number and we'll get them later because, by the way, high-speed chases are really dangerous in town especially. And so I wonder for sort of civil administrative violations, like I hung around for too long or, you know, in the country or overstayed my visa or, hey, I'm crossing this boundary. You know, can't we really treat those more like the administrative violations that they are? You know, they're, they're clearly not crimes against other persons without a lot more facts being involved, right? So. Yeah. When I was coming of age out of college, and learning about immigration, and I was listening to a little bit. I remember getting XM radio and listening to America Left, whatever station number that was. I was like, oh, I, I just want to hear what the left has to say because I've never really been exposed to it. And I remember, I'm pretty sure it was Al Franken who basically said that the people on the right who complain about violence or you know immigrants who come to the States and end up committing criminal acts, not necessarily heinous, but just you know committing crimes, that that's a crime issue. Right. Because it's a crime issue with respect to, like, if a native were to commit the exact same crime, it's not a different issue. And I remember being very like, what? Well, no, because, well, and now I'm looking back and I'm thinking, I don't even know what the reason I had to sort of dispute that because at the time I was not in favor of more immigration. And I just, I now look back at that and I'm thinking, well, wait a second. If people are worried about catching criminals who come here from across a, a border... Well, we have a solution to that, and that's police, or we're not living in anarchotopia here, so we're just going to go with, you know, we have things for that called police. And it seems as though a lot of times people want to treat it as a federal issue simply because, I don't know, like maybe because it's supposed to be more authoritative or maybe, um, or authoritarian, I should say, or has better control because it's a national border, so it just seems like logically in their heads it's a national problem. But, you know, as we've been talking about this whole issue of property rights. And yeah. so I think that's where somebody's confusion lies, where it's like we associate that national boundary with the same analog as a personal boundary. Well, the reason that local authorities often want to get feds involved is because sometimes the feds have a hammer that they don't. And in the case of immigration policy, it's just much easier to remove a, a non-citizen from the United States than it is to convict them of a crime. And so I think that's part of it. It's just the quick and dirty way to s solve my problem. If I'm a sheriff in a border town and there's a guy from across the border who's given me grief, it's a lot easier if the feds just come and whisk him away rather than me have to uh, okay. collect evidence against him and work with the prosecutor to convict him of a crime. And now I've got to hold him in my jail unless he did a bad enough crime to go to state prison, right? I mean, it just, it solves my problem and it makes it somebody else's problem if the feds get involved. And again, there's just a lower burden to prove that somebody ought to be removed from the United States if they're a non-citizen than there is yeah. to prove that they're guilty of a crime. So I, I think that's really an institutional incentive that exists that makes people reach for that particular hammer. But I think there's also just an element of people being wrong about what the consequences of immigration are, right? I mean, and I mm -hmm. will confess that I was inoculated a little bit early on about this topic because I grew up in South Louisiana between an Indian family and a Honduran family. And the Indian dad was literally a rocket scientist. And the Honduran family started two businesses 
while I was neighbors with them. You know, I mean, they were some of the most productive, bright, hardworking people that I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. And I knew them from the time I was little, you know, and and if we remove our blinders about living in the United States, really, I could say my parents were immigrants too, right? Because my mom was in Louisiana from Alabama and my dad was in Louisiana from Maryland. And so they had immigrated in a sense. And really, I think there's no moral distinction that we ought to draw as Christians between you know, my parents moving to a place where they could, you know, obtain an education. In their case, it was at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. But, you know, what makes that distinct, as Christians ought to analyze this, from the family that, you know, moves across an international border to better their lot in life? Yeah. And I'm not sure that there is a moral distinction. I don't think there is. No, there isn't. And what's <laughs> surprising in my mind is, you know, you and I both grew up in the church and had I'm assuming you had the experience of, you know, like a missionary coming and talking to your church about what they're doing around the world. And you have this sort of global sense of belonging with a group of people whose language you don't speak. They don't speak yours. You'll never meet them, but you're all gathering at not exactly the same time, but you're all gathering regularly to praise the Lord and to worship. And you have this sense of camaraderie, if you will, to those other brothers and sisters in the universal church. And so it doesn't even matter how big your circle of here's what qualifies as true church or whatever is. There are people around the globe worshiping God and we think of ourselves as a global community. And then somehow (laughs) when it shifts to national policy, it's like, oh wait, we have national borders now. (laughs) It's just like this weird jump in my mind that that people seem to have. Well, and I think that it frankly goes back to the original reason that Israel fell into temptation and created a kingdom, and that is fear of the neighbors. You know, in 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel was approached by the elders of Israel, you know, the first request was because it was a honest courts problem and, hey, your sons aren't good judges, and so we need somebody else who's going to be a better judge. But they ultimately admitted that it was about having a tough guy to lead them into battle like the neighbors have, you know, like the other nations have. And so I think that there is just an awful lot of fear of people who aren't from here and you don't perceive as being with you. And I love your point about Christians being with other Christians, period, no matter where they're from, right? Because that's a fact. And there, there is no loyalty that can be above our loyalty to God. And as a result of being loyal to God, we have to be loyal to his church, right? And by church, I'm talking about the universal church of everybody who's a, who's a believer in Jesus, right? And yeah. the idea that we would put up barriers or support barriers that inhibit the spreading of the gospel or directly violate commands in scripture, which again, we're not supposed to have a law that treats you different based on you being foreign born rather than native born. I mean, the Bible is express and straightforward and explicit about this. There's just no way around it. And the fact is, if you have a law that says somebody can be kidnapped by the government because they're from someplace else and they're here for too long, even though they're paying their bill at the hotel or they're paying rent at the apartment or whatever, you know, even though they're not a trespasser as far as any native-born person would be concerned if they were doing the same thing, right? Yet the law can allow that person to be removed by force and taken someplace they don't want to go. Yeah. And I just think that's wrong, especially if we're in the kind of crowd that talks about this being a Christian nation. We cannot mm-hmm. call ourselves a Christian nation if we're not open yeah. to the stranger. And that's just a fact. 
Yeah, and I can imagine that there are a handful of listeners who might think, yeah, but that was the nation of Israel that God gave those laws to, and they were, in, and Israel was in covenant with, mm-hmm. with Yahweh, right? And yet, there is more to say about immigration in the scriptures. Like, I think we kind of were like going through here and and talking about the scriptures, and we do sort of list. I guess it's not really a list, but it's a huge paragraph that's in the book that is about, here's what God says about immigration. And then, of course, Dick, you, your article that you wrote for LCI way back in the day, as they say, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> a little aside here. My kids, every time I think about like time before them, it's like the quote, back then <laughs> is what they say. <laughs> is that how they did it back then? Anyway, back when LCI was you know earlier on, you wrote that article. And so the, the Bible is really chock full of verses about, immigration. And it isn't just about, hey, there's these laws in the Old Testament that we should follow today. But we do get a picture of the heart of God that continues throughout the rest of the scripture. And especially in the message of Jesus, especially in the way in which the early church sought to take care of those on the margins. Immigrants are not always on the margins per se, but with respect to those who are fleeing countries, they are the ones to be most welcomed. Because, I mean, for crying out loud, most conservatives want people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That's what these people are doing. And, you know, to deny them the ability to do something that you believe is virtuous if a native were doing it is pretty ridiculous in my mind. It sure is. And another problem with it is that when folks aren't here lawfully and they go and they take employment someplace and under the table, it opens them up to abuse in a way that a native-born person or a person with lawful status wouldn't be exposed to, right? And so there are, again, scriptural admonitions about not just immigrants, but all workmen being paid what they're due, right? And it is sinful. It's considered abusive and an abomination before God to withhold what is due from the workmen. But when we have these punitive immigration laws, we open up immigrants to those sorts of abuses, which I think is another reason to oppose those sorts of policies, and we have to remember that this isn't just about chalking up the you know top number of jewels in my crown in heaven or something like that, right? This isn't like an optional thing where I can go above and beyond and, hey, look at me, I'm super Christian, I'm going to help an immigrant, right? We're commanded to do this, and there is the real danger of national judgment for abusing the immigrant, right? Widespread mistreatments of immigrants led to national judgment in the case of Israel, and I think that it can lead to judgment in other cases as well, right? But if you look at Ezekiel 22.7, Jeremiah chapter 22, I mean, it's really clear that mistreatment of immigrants can lead to national judgment. And indeed, it was a condition of Israel's continuing to enjoy the promised land that they not abuse immigrants. And so this is mm. critically important. And there's another thing that I, I have to hit on. There's very much this rah, rah, I'm wearing my team's baseball cap sense to nationalism, right? People love their flag and they they love their team. And it's just a real danger when we pick some team that ever plays against the real home team, right? And that's, you know, nations were not an invention of God as a blessing that were part of, you know, the, you know, pre-fall human uh, experience, nations separating people was part of the curse of sin, right? And people being confused in their language and scattered and separated into these many nations and not being able to 
collaborate with each other as easily after that was a consequence of sin. It's not something that we should try to perpetuate, right? As Christians, all we should care about is building the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is not of this world. And so if we're putting up walls between Christians, that's not a Christian activity. And we need to be very, very nervous about that. Yeah. Again, because there's consequences of sin and because it interferes with our, our mission, which is to spread the gospel. What do you think of when people say that there's like a threat at the border? Like there's this idea, it's like, it's similar to like an invasion or a foreign threat. And I know that Trump sort of, well, trumped that idea up. What is your reaction to that? So invaders don't pay rent. And Oh, uh, well, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, invaders don't pay rent. And so people who come to the United States and you know, they jump the fence or they overstay a visa or swim across a river or whatever it is. It's not like they then go on to like take over households and hold people hostage and live there rent-free or something. I mean, they're paying rent to willing landlords. They're working for willing employers. Mm -hmm. They're buying goods from willing, you know, storekeepers. So where's the crime? I mean, it's just, there's Mm -hmm. no element of invasion. The only invasion is as it relates to the state's rules, right, to the government's rules, there are no violations, at least there don't have to be. I guess, I mean, certainly some immigrants commit crimes, just like some natives commit crimes. But the fact of being an unlawfully president of the United States does not implicate anybody's natural rights, right? It doesn't violate anybody else's rights unless there is a further trespass. And insofar as there's not a further trespass, then there just hasn't been an invasion. Right. For the same reason that it wasn't an invasion when my dad moved from Maryland to New Orleans to go to seminary. He was not an invader. He was, I would argue, an immigrant. Now, it was domestically, so we don't usually use that term. But I mean, the U.S. is a big place. Right. I mean, a couple hundred years ago, he would have been an immigrant. You know, to make that move from one to the other, because a couple hundred years ago, actually, a couple hundred years ago, he would have been an invader, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, not my dad. You just don't know him, see, Doug. But anyway, oh, okay. everybody likes my dad. All right. Uh, no, I I just don't buy the invader argument. Yeah, and it's really easy to identify an invader when you see him because he's trying to take something from somebody that doesn't want to give it up, and that's just not yeah, what right. illegal immigrants are doing. People who are sore about unlawful immigration are really upset about what's happening to stuff that doesn't belong to them and doesn't really belong to anybody they know. It just only belongs to them in the sense that the nation belongs to them because they have this collectivist sense of property rights and all of the government property or something. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you said it really well. And the the, (laughs) you were speaking very precisely in your sort of way. And I was thinking, hmm, a way to sort of translate that, if I will, because Dick, you are very precise in your language. And so I sometimes have to be like, wait, no, what, what's he saying? Oh, what's he saying is just crossing the line isn't really an offense to human beings other than just a arbitrary government law. Right. Like people are not necessarily being harmed by someone just simply crossing a border. Like that doesn't harm anybody. Yeah, there's no victim. Show me the victim. Further action would be required to literally harm somebody, right? Right. And, and again, you know, we as libertarians, just to split hairs because I'm an attorney and that's what we're paid to do. But, you know, it's not just harm even, right? Because in a sense, Burger King harms McDonald's by competing with them and they could outcompete them and put them out of business maybe, right? But it's a violation of somebody's rights. And if I'm crossing at a place where I'm on public property or it's a de minimis, you know, trespass where I cross the corner of somebody's property, but I didn't stay there and I didn't destroy anything. I mean, it's, I mean, where is the beef? And I just, 
if you can show it to me, fine. I believe in property rights. I mean, there's no exception to property rights just because you're from somewhere else, just like there shouldn't be a detriment to your property rights because you're from somewhere else. I just want to know what the violation is. And I think that too often when people are complaining about this, they're talking about these second and third order effects that they believe exist from immigration that are really, you know, we ought to blame the central planners for. And probably the most common objection to open or free immigration or however you want to describe it, immigration where we don't have a whole lot of restriction on peaceful people traveling across international boundaries, probably the most common objection is the welfare state objection, right? The idea that, oh, we're going to overload our already strained, you know, social safety nets and we just can't do this. Now, two responses to that. First off, in ancient Israel, part of the reason that you were leaving stuff in the field for gleaners was for the stranger. So insofar as voluntary charity, you know, for the general public or whatever is mandated, it is mandated for the stranger, not just the native born, to be clear, okay? And that's expressed in scripture. Now, with that said, though, we as libertarians, of course, do not believe in a compulsory social safety net. And you and I talked about that in a previous podcast, right? Talking about social justice, we love the idea of benevolent charity for others, but we do not believe in using compulsion to achieve that. And so, you know, is it wrong to have social welfare programs and then immigrants come over and now maybe the cost of those programs go up because there's more users potentially under this scenario? Yes, of course, but let's blame the person who's actually victimizing us. And that's the tax man, right? That's the guy who's taking our stuff. And, you know, the immigrant or the poor person or whoever the beneficiary is of that program, they're just the pretense for it, okay? And you can't blame that person for what the robber does. You know, the fact that, you know, Jesse James went and spent money in some, you know, bar town and the person didn't even know who he was or whatever, and they're, you know, he's in there spending in the saloon. You don't blame the saloon keeper. Blame Jesse James for robbing the bank, right? And that is what we ought to do. We ought to blame the state for socialist centrally planned programs that are failures that destroy and diminish civilization, right? We do not blame the victims. And that's what it is when we blame, you know, the single mom who's on welfare or whatever. And again, I'm not saying people shouldn't make good choices. Choices have consequences and we ought to encourage good decision-making. But let's not pretend that these poor people living in housing projects or these immigrants are the ones who are making the policy that takes our money. It's just not true, right? Those are other people that are inflicting those violations on our rights, on us, taking our stuff against our will. And yeah. the others are just the excuse for them to do it. In other words, the state is the burden, not the recipients of the welfare. Yeah. The problem is what that argument does when we complain about the social welfare programs expense being exacerbated by immigration is that what we're doing is we're saying, well, we can't have freedom until we get rid of this other imposition on freedom, right? So that means that we have socialism bootstrapping more socialism because we can't have freedom until we get rid of all the socialism at once, right? And that, that means that we've just given up the fight. Right, if we if we say that. We can't say that. Well, that's just a rhetorical rebuttal. It's not even actually true that they burdened the welfare system that's more true. than natives. <laughs> right. Well, and of course, as an Austrian, you know, we don't need to get to empirical evidence. We can just solve this all a priori. But now that you mention it, yeah, that's right. In fact, people who immigrate here from other countries are more likely to start a small business. They're, of course, by law, ineligible to receive many of the welfare benefits that native-born people yeah. are eligible for. So for that reason alone, they can't 
expand the uh, right, the expense right. there. But no, good point. Yeah. Well, if listeners want to hear more about this topic, we've had several episodes. There's a episode 16, back to episode 16 with Art Carden. I did an episode with a person who had more personal experience, Dr. Eric Larson. And of course, the Mr. Open Borders himself, Brian Kaplan, is episode 156. And then like pretty recently, Norman and I talked about immigration and the drug war in episode 216. So we have plenty of content on immigration. There's plenty of content on libertarianchristians.com on immigration. And of course... In Faith Seeking Freedom, we talk about immigration. And Dick, you and I know that we did not get to all the questions or to sort of cover them. And of course, we don't want to give away the contents of the book in a conversation here. But I appreciate you coming on and joining me to talk about the book, Faith Seeking Freedom. And I hope we get to do another episode together. It's always a lot of fun. God bless. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.